be in Revelation 3, verse 14. As usual, before we go into the New Testament Revelation, we're going to go back to the Old Testament, into the book of Proverbs, and continue where we left off last Sunday. And we're going to be in Proverbs 3.27, starting with, uh, yeah, 3.27. There's going to be four verses that we're going to go through. And he says this, Be kind to others is the uh, heading. Verse 27, Do not withhold good from those to whom it is due when it is in the power of your hand to do so. Now, if you're a good student of the Bible and especially, you know, the New Testament, that's going to sound familiar to you. There's a scripture in James 4.17, which is really parallel to this, and it says, Therefore, to him who knows to do good and does not do it, to him it is sin. It's a picture of if God has given you the means, God has given you the opportunity, God has given you maybe the, um, you know, the tools to do good, and it's, you know, an obvious situation, and you just kind of ignore it. He says, don't withhold to do good from those to whom it is due. Verse 28, do not say to your neighbor, go and come back, and tomorrow I'll give it to you when you have it with you. Again, James chapter 2, a few parallels here. Starting with verse 15, James says, If a brother or sister is naked and destitute of daily food, and one of you says to them, Depart in peace, be warm and filled, but you do not give them the things which are needed for the body, what does it profit? Thus also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. Again, it's so great how God cuts to the heart. And, and you know, it's a shame because the Bible is written to really God's people. Now, there are those who are, have been atheists or were searching and, and started reading the Bible, and all of a sudden the words leapt off the page, and it really regenerated them, as Romans, I think, 10.17 tells us. But for the most part, this is the letter to God's people. And even though the Proverbs is written here in this section from the Father to the Son, it's also written from God to his people. It says, do not devise evil against your neighbor, for he dwells by you for safety's sake. Do not strive with a man without cause, if he has done you no harm. And in the pool of God's people, there's going to be those that have the tendency to be maybe stingy, maybe unfriendly, maybe a little mean, maybe uncompassionate, maybe haughty. And God gives us the guidelines here or the, the correction for us to make the changes in our own hearts. And that's important for us to learn this morning. Okay. Last Sunday, when we were in the book of Revelation, we covered six of the churches that Jesus was, or six of the seven churches that Jesus was speaking to. Um, a few Sundays back, we covered Ephesus, Smyrna, then Pergamos, Thyatira, Sardis, and Philadelphia. And today, in Revelation chapter 3, we're going to look at the last church, Laodicea. So 3.14. He says, And to the angel of the church of the Laodiceans write, These things says the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. Now, this is the Lord Jesus himself speaking. This is the message that he wants taken to his churches. The church of Laodicea, the widely accepted date, and for those of you who haven't been following along with us, we've said this a few times, uh, Jesus spoke to a particular geographical church of that time period. He spoke to a church type, a church that uh, resembles some of these characteristics, and he spoke to a church era. As we go through the church, starting in Jesus' day, uh, through the different time periods, the face of the church has changed. So this church era, it's widely accepted as the A.D. 1900s to the tri tribulation. 
And what's notable about that? Well, if you look at history, it's really the postmodern era that we live in. And there's a lot of things that go with that. This is not a blasting of one particular denomination. It really stretches across many denominations. Uh, and it's the apostate church of the last days. And what we're going to see here is it's mostly an eclectic mosaic of today's church. Something from here, something from there. Uh, and we're going to cover that. Now, let's go back to the original letter that Jesus wrote. He wrote to the Laodiceans. Laodicea existed at that time period roughly 95 A.D. It was known for its glossy black wool, its banking community, maybe they could give us a little advice today, uh, its wealth, and the manufacture of a special eye, uh, medicinal eye salve that, they, that was very popular there. Uh, this was the city of Laodicea. The Laodicean wealth caused them to be self-sufficient, and it was no different with the Laodicean church. Unfortunately, a lot of times, Churches, and this happened with the children of Israel. They were supposed to be a light to all the pagan world, but they ended up being influenced the reverse way. And that's even true in our lives. Are we influencing the people around us, or are they influencing us? That's a question we need to ask ourselves. And a lot of times in the church, the surroundings of the church will come in and, and creep into the church and surround the church and influence it. We're supposed to be a light to the world and the community, but in our uh, wealthy society, in our society that's convenient and modernized, a lot of times the surrounding pagans or the unbelieving world end up affecting the church. So the United States church has interesting characteristics of it that the Asian church and the African church and those churches today don't have. So that's, that's an important point to look at. So their self-sufficiency, the Laodicean church's self-sufficiency pulled them away from Christ. Now, going back to Dr. Havner's four stages of ministry, which we covered, Dr. Havner said that there was four stages of ministry. Two of them, the first two seemed to be positive, and the last two seemed to be negative. The man, the movement, the machine, and then the monument stage. If Sardis was the monument stage, if you've been following with us, they were dead. They were, you know, there was nothing left in them. There was no life. Jesus told them that they had to be revived and, and life had to be breathed into them. Neglect caused them to die out. If Sardis was in the monument stage, then Laodicea was in the machine stage. It was running on its own without Christ. And it, and it kind of made a little humorous display about that where uh, it's, a, it's a ministry, it, it has a Christian name, and it's just this big machine. The wheels are turning and... People are in awe looking at the machine and say, how does that machine run? And is Christ even in that machine anywhere? Well, I don't know, but it runs pretty good. You just need to put a little oil in it once in a while. So Laodicea was in the machine stage of ministry. Jesus presents himself to this Laodicean church as the following. Number one, the amen. In the Old Testament, the Hebrew word is amen, which meant truth, faithful, and was at times used for God himself. Pilate asked, what is truth? And in the New Testament, the, the word uh, amen in the Hebrew was transliterated into the Greek amen, basically the same word. It was taken one for one and brought into the Greek. Today, truth seems to be lost to relativism, dualism, and plurality in a postmodern society. Now, if you take truth and you look it up in the dictionary, what do you find? There's absolute truth, right? Number one. First uh, description, that which accords with fact or reality. Second def definition of truth, it's correct. Third definition, it's a verified principle. It can be verified. 
to found if it's actual and it, it conforms with reality. And four, actual existence. Jesus also called himself the Amen and also the beginning of the creation of God. Now, some who resist against the deity of Christ will say, aha, he's the beginning of the creation of, of God, therefore he was one of the creations. No. The Greek word for begin is arche, where we get in the English hierarchy or archangel. The word arche, better translated, is source or ruler. So that makes a lot more sense now. Jesus is the source of the creation of God. As a matter of fact, John 1.1, a great scripture, or John 1.3 and 4, says this. All things were made through him, meaning Jesus. And without him, Jesus, nothing was made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. So Jesus is the source, right, uh, or the rule of the creation of God. So the question is, why does Jesus express himself this way to the Laodiceans? Remember what we talked about? Jesus spoke to each church uniquely. See, that's the beauty of Christ. He loves us individually. Even these apostate, backslidden churches, he would speak to them as if they were the only ones on the planet. And he would tell them, I am the beginning and the end. I am the source. I am the depending on that particular church's problem. So why did Jesus say he was the amen and the beginning of the creation of God? Well, because Jesus was saying, this is what I am. I am correct. I am in actual existence. You're a facade. He, he was saying to them, this is what I am, and this is what you're not. You're really lacking, and you need to make the proper changes. They were in direct opposition to Jesus' teachings and his character. Verse 15. Jesus says, I know your works, that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish you were cold or hot. So then, because you were lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will spew you out of my mouth. Spew is an interesting word. In the Greek, the word is emesai. In the English, we get the word emetic from. And if you know what an emetic is, if you've swallowed poison, you take an emetic and it helps you throw up. So let's, let's put this in perspective here. This is more of an act of vomiting. And Listen, we all read the Gospels and how gentle and sweet Jesus was, but when he really had to take it to you, he took it to you. And you can almost act it out. Jesus is speaking to the church and he's saying, I wish you were cold or hot, but you're lukewarm and therefore I'm going to vomit you out of my mouth. You make me, what you're doing is making me sick. I can't, I can't even, I can't hold it down. I can't stomach it. And this is something that, what if Jesus said this to the church of Calvary Chapel Crossfields? I'm going to vomit you out of my mouth. Some would get arrogant and someone would say well how do i know that came from jesus and others would say oh gee i'm cut to the heart i need to look at my heart and where do i make the changes this is serious business that jesus is speaking to this church and many of the churches of today the history was hierapolis was a city now there's a little there's always background to what jesus is speaking about there's always background to the bible hierapolis which was another city nearby had hot therapeutic springs that must have been really nice you know it would come up from the earth and uh it would be nice and hot and you could just lay in that thing it was like a a sauna without electricity you didn't need electricity for it Colossae, on the other hand had cold refreshing water Oh, you were parched from that hot, hot climate and Colossi just piped this cold water that you could just take and you could just totally be quenched from that water. But Laodicea had a problem. It had all these things, the banking community, the wealth, but their water stunk. It was no good. It was warm water and it, was, it had mineral deposits in it. So people would drink it and like, ugh, 
This stuff isn't good for anything. It wasn't therapeutic, and it certainly wasn't good if you were thirsty. So hot and cold water were beneficial, and warm was useless. The Laodicean brand of Christianity was also useless. It was worthless, according to their Lord. Warm Christianity has a pretentiousness with nothing behind it, resulting from being comfortable and complacent. That word complacent takes me back 18 years when I was in the police academy. When you're in law enforcement, they teach you, don't be complacent. Complacency kills. I must have heard that well over 100 times. The officer that saunters up to the car stop, it's, it's, it's his 1,000th car stop. And that's the time that a guy could have a gun and shoot the officer. So officer always has to be vigilant, not complacent. Complacency, complacency kills cops, but complacency in Christianity also kills your faith. If you're complacent about your faith, it's going to die. It's going to be worthless after a while. And this was the problem with the Laodiceans. We can also make the case using a colloquialism and still get the same result. Um, We know that we can say, hot is normally good. You're you're on fire for me. You're hot for me. Or, oh, that person was real cold to me, right? But warm is, eh, it's not really hot or cold. In other words, you could make the case for they're not, they're not on either end. Jesus is saying to them, you're not cold, you're not hot, you're not on either end. You're a fence-sitter, you're double-minded, make a decision. You can't take a stand on anything spiritual, Laodiceans. What is it with you guys? Don't call yourself a Christian if I'm not your foundation, in, in essence. How many today call themselves Christians, and you, you talk with somebody, and they, oh, you think you've got a bond, a brother, a sister... And they espouse all but the Christian ideal. They're always on the wrong side of where, where God is in his word. And you kind of scratch your head and say, wait, you said you were a Christian. I don't understand this. How can you come down on these issues that are totally against the scripture? Verse 17. Because you say, I am rich, I have become wealthy, and have need of nothing, and do not know that you are wretched, miserable, poor, blind, And naked. This is certainly a letter that I wouldn't want to get from the Lord. If you remember the church of Smyrna, remember the persecuted church? About themselves, they thought that they were poor and pathetic based on their physical situation, based on their persecution, and what others thought of them. But the Lord, on the other hand, commended them and said, You think that you're poor, but you are actually rich. They were rich spiritually. And that was all that mattered. The Laodiceans, on the other hand, okay, right here, they thought they were wonderful based on their physical situation, their achievements, what others thought of them. But the Lord's assessment of them was scathing, scathing. Today, the arrogance and pride of the modern church and ego-driven ministries display a complete lack of humility. The Laodicean church measured its success by worldly standards, by numbers, by real estate, by investments, maybe even by the prosperity gospel, and maybe even technology. That's the new thing, the new rage. Every church has to have technology. And listen, we have it too, but I only use it as a study aid or an aid for people to learn. You know, we don't worship our technology. So what happened was all these things were put in front of what should have been first. Now, verse 18, Jesus says to them, here's the solution to their problem. He says, I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire, that you may be rich, and white garments, 
that you may be clothed, that the shame of your nakedness may not be revealed, and anoint your eyes with eye salve, that you may see. These are three points of counseling Jesus gives to the Laodicean church, and let's break them down. They're very good. Number one, Jesus said to buy from, buy from him gold refined in the fire. In other words, hey, Laodiceans, I'm going to give you, you think you're, you're doing good, you think you have wealth, I'm going to give you real wealth. I'm going to give you treasures in heaven that the stock market isn't going to affect, that uh, the bank going under isn't going to affect, that a thief coming in and stealing isn't going to affect, that natural decay won't affect. I'm going to give you real treasures, treasures in heaven. This is a picture of purity which the Laodiceans were lacking. And many of you have heard this metallurgic process. So you have gold ore or some type of ore that's deposited in, in, in minerals or rocks or whatever, and you heat it up, and it comes out, it, it oozes out, you collect it. You collect enough of it, and then you heat it up again. You boil it, and all the impurities and the dross comes up to the top. You scoop it up, and you throw it out. And you keep doing this until you have this refined gold. All right? It's also a picture of persecution. And persecution produces purity. You can take that and bring that example into the Christian life. As Christians, we we become persecuted. Um, We we are put into situations the Lord allows where we have to make tough decisions, decisions of character and, and integrity. And each time that process happens, we become more pure as Christians. And the Christian life is a journey. And, and, and as we go through that life, we look for that purifying process. Jesus was probably saying to them, in a sense, I'll paraphrase, your gold is fool's gold. It's worthless. And maybe you guys need a little bit of persecution to to fix your situation. The second point, he says to be clothed with white garments so that no one sees your nakedness and because you should be ashamed of that nakedness. Again, this is a spiritual issue to cover their nakedness. In other words, they were nebulous to their spiritual lacking. They were oblivious to what their need was. It reminds me of a story, um, actually a children's story, Hans Christian Andersen. Remember the, how many people have heard the emperor has the emperor's new clothes? Okay, a lot of, a lot of you. And it's a basic story about this emperor and he has these two charlatans who are going to make him this fine suit, this new, these new duds. And they were charlatans, so they actually really didn't have any fabric and they kind of mined, you know, pretended putting on his trousers and his jacket. He's looking at himself, you know, I'm naked. And they were saying, well, you know, only the foolish people, the ignorant people don't see this fine quality clothing. So, the, you know, the emperor went with it. Then he goes out into the square and he meets his subjects and they're all like looking at him, but no one's going to say anything because it's the emperor. A little kid comes out in the crowd and says, he's naked. It took a little kid to show everybody that, you know, he really is naked. He's not wearing any clothes. So he, he didn't even realize. And it's kind of like the Laodiceans. You know, the emperor had new clothes, but they were no clothes at all. And, and he had nakedness. And it was a picture of shame in the Bible. I'll give you another example. Okay. This is apparently a common dream that at least everybody has once in their lifetime. You go to sleep at night, and now you're back in grade school, right? Some of you are kind of laughing. And you go into your classroom, and everybody looks normal, right? And all the kids and the teacher, and they're all laughing at you. And you, you look down, you don't have any clothes on. Or maybe you just have your underwear. And you're ashamed. You know, the whole dream, it, it's, it's, it produces anxiety because you've you got to get out of there and put something on, right? But at least in your dream, you know enough to know that if you're naked in front of other people, it should provoke shame. But the Laodiceans did not have that. They were spiritually naked. They were pompous about what they had, but... The Lord looked at them and said, you're, you don't even get it. It's shameful. It's humiliating what you're doing. 
White garments were also a picture of cleansing and sanctification as well as a covering. The third point that Jesus makes, you need to buy from me ISAV. Wait, that doesn't make sense because they made ISAV and it was actually a university apparently, if you read history, that produced this special ointment. A lot of people used it and it, cured up, it cleared up a lot of their uh, eye ailments. So they were the king of ISAV and Jesus is saying, you're blind. You need to buy ISAV from me. They needed to see everything spiritually. They weren't seeing the spiritual issues. The church was blind to its own condition. They, were, they thought they were doing church properly, but their material wealth kept them from needing anything. In addition, the ISAB that Jesus has to offer us is a picture of the Holy Spirit, right? What does the Bible say? The natural man doesn't understand spiritual things. It's only till, till the natural man becomes a spiritual being, becomes born again. Now he starts to see everything clearly. The cataracts are removed, and now you have these special lenses that you could see everything for what it is. And they needed that. It's amazing how many Christians desire complete independence and autonomy from the Lord and end up in the same state. This happened in Genesis. It happened in Psalm 2, right? In Genesis, Adam and Eve, they had everything they could possibly want. But they, they just had to take a bite of that fruit and, and just know everything, right? Uh, Satan deceived Eve and... and I guess she, her desire there was to be like God, and I guess what God gave her wasn't enough, and Adam went along with it, and this is the state of the world today. Psalm 2, the same thing. Uh, the rebellious against the Lord's anointed. Let's, let's break the Lord's bonds. Enough of the Lord's cords to me. I want to be independent, and I want to be autonomous. Well, why should it be any different with God's people today? Right? It's, it's a common sin that we try to do. We try to get everything lined up just perfect so we don't have need anymore. But a lot of that need, you turn to the Lord when you're in that need. Verse 19. As many as I love, Jesus says, I rebuke and chasten. Therefore, be zealous and repent. The world would be a better place if people could just grasp this, con uh, this concept. The layer of the scenes needed to humble themselves. When the Lord punishes or disciplines us, it's because he loves us. 1 Peter 4.17 tells us that, for the time has come for judgment to begin at the house of God. And if it begins with us first, what will be the end of those who do not obey the gospel of God? The, the judgment has to come and start with the house of God, with God's people. And the question is, why? Well, the other question is, can God's people affect the unbelieving world positively if they're undisciplined? The answer is they can't. That's why judgment needs to begin at the house of God. If we're just like everybody else, if we're doing everything the world is doing, then who would want to be a Christian? And, and they're deceived. we're deceiving them if we, if we behave like that because we're deceiving them into believing, well, that person's a Christian, they've been promised eternal life, and they're doing everything that I'm doing, and their life mirrors my life, so what's the need for me to go over there? It doesn't make any sense. So that's important to look at. The Lord will always afford us an opportunity to repent. None of us are beyond help. And the question is, what is it that you have done? You know, some people come in and they, they have thoughts in their mind and they think, I'm going to try this church thing. But I look around and everybody seems to be really nice and I've got problems and I've got issues or I'm a lukewarm Christian. But you know what? Nobody's beyond help. Jesus took the worst churches, the most debauched things that were going on in these churches, Laodicea, Sardis, 1 Corinthians, right? 
the Lord used Paul to help that place get cleaned up. These people were doing ungodly, ghastly things that the world wasn't doing. But Jesus still loved them enough and gave them that opportunity to repent. So none of us are beyond help. God's desire through discipline or any of this stuff is always reconciliation, is always restoration, and we see that in the Scripture. The Apostle Paul writes 2 Corinthians, and he's elated, he's elated, shares God's joy that the Corinthians put away all their idolatry and their uh, debauchery and came back and repented and, and came towards God. Paul was excited, the Lord was excited, and that's what the Lord desires. Jesus says here, be zealous and repent. Be excited about coming back to the fold. The only things the Laodiceans were excited about was their wealth and self-sufficiency. And there's two types of those who are busted and hit rock bottom. The Laodiceans were busted. Sometimes we're busted. Sometimes someone who loves us will come to us and they bust us. You know, they say, you're, you're messed up. This is what you did, whatever. And there's two types of response is of people who receive that type of counsel. The first one is, Okay, I'm busted. What do you want me to do? You know, the attitude. What do I have to do to make it right? What do I have to do to get my privileges back? Certainly we would expect that from a haughty church. And honestly, if I'm counseling somebody and that's their attitude, my attitude is, okay, secession's over. Don't waste my time. I want to I put my time with, with those who really want to know what it's like to come back to the fold. Not manipulators or uh, people who have an attitude. It's, it's, that's not right. The second response is King David's response to the prophet Nathan when he was busted. Remember David's response? When Nathan the prophet came to David and, and, and told a story about this really wicked man, David said, who is that man? I'm going to have him killed. And Nathan goes through the whole thing and, and David's response. And Nathan says to him, King, David, you are that man. David was cut to the heart. He was so upset that he offended the Lord. He was walking in blindness for so long and then Nathan opened his eyes and he was... He was just cut to the heart. What do I have to do, Nathan, to make it right? Please. He could have had Nathan's head taken off. He was the king. Nobody would have known. He's a bad guy. Just get, get, take him out back and get rid of him. But Nathan was, was cut to the heart. He was broken. And that's what the Lord is looking for. That zeal and excitement to do right. Uh, Pastor Anthony told me about, uh, 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 he, he has this phrase, and I'm not sure where he got it, but he said that, if you're dealing with somebody or you're trying to restore them or you're trying to counsel them and you're doing more work than they are, you're doing it wrong. They should be doing more work than you are. It should be that zeal. Jesus says, and again, why does he use this word? Zealous is a very strong word. I believe that Jesus wants us to be zealous for him, not that lackluster faith. Zealous for him. Zealous for coming back to the fold. Verse 20. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and dine with him and he with me. What's really sad is that a church put Jesus on the outside. This was a church. Jesus is asking a church if he can come in. Boom, 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 boom. Anybody in there? Can you guys please let me in? See, Jesus doesn't take the battering ram and, and you know, the jackboots and kick the door in and, and jump on you. Jesus is a gentleman. You know? he, he's, he, he, he puts that out so that it comes from the heart. It's not so that he can dominate us. Ever since the beginning, the Lord has given us, God has given us free will. And even up to this day, knocking on the door of the church, hey guys, can I come in? I really love you. Please let me in. But the Laodiceans were too busy being self-sufficient and patting themselves on the back for their achievements to answer the door. 
And we miss the entire application of Christ's objective if we don't go from the church application to the personal application. Where do we stand individually? (laughs) Have we as Christians put the Lord outside of some of our rooms? Have we done that? With our attitudes, with our lifestyle, have we put the Lord outside where he's knocking on the door? Boom, 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 boom. Hey, Joe, can I come in? You hear something? I think that's a still small voice over there. Oh, it's Jesus. Oh, Jesus, just a minute. I got to put some things away and put some things in some closets and lock the door and I'll be right in. Please, just a minute. I got to move some stuff around so you can't see it. Open the door. Jesus, come in. How's it going? Oh, don't, don't touch that door. No. Jesus, do me a favor. Can you sit right there and not move for the whole time that you're here? And that's sometimes the way we treat the Lord. You know, we don't let him into our life. Churches don't let him in. We don't let him in as individuals. And if we do let him in, we only let him in part of the way. Jesus, stay in that room, sit in that chair. Please don't move because I don't want you to see everything. You know, I don't want you to open these doors and see what's going on in there. We have some uh, rooms in our house at home that we just kind of stuff a bunch of stuff in. And it's like one of those cartoons. If somebody was to open the door, it would all fall on their heads and they'd sue us. But, uh, you know, <laughs> that's, that's sometimes how we treat the Lord. And Jesus says to dine with me. In Middle Eastern cultures, we've talked about this, eating a meal was one of the more important aspects of a relationship. No mistake that communion was associated with dining. And, as we'll see in the scripture, later on in Revelation, the marriage supper of the Lamb in Revelation, same thing. These are all emblematic of relationships. Meals and relationships are related on some level. Verse 21. To him who overcomes, I will grant to sit with me on my throne as I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Wow. Sit with me on my throne. Let's go back in time. You know, we don't have a monarchy in the United States. I don't know if you've gone to England or some of these countries. They barely have them either. But in those days, a monarchy, the king's throne, it was this elaborate type of chair. And he would sit there and he would make judgments and he would uh, preside over judicial proceedings. He had his, his special chair. I have a special chair at my house that the, the feet kick up, but it's no, nothing like a throne. But Jesus says, you know, in those days, nobody else could sit on that throne. You, you could lose your life if you sat on the king's throne. But Jesus is saying, sit with me on my throne. Again, this is the model for victory and overcoming. And Jesus is always the standard. So for Jesus to offer you that special position on his throne with him, then it's a picture of conquering. The kings, when they would come back from battle, they would have these ceremonies and conquer. And the conquering victor, the king, whoever won, had that land, and they would be able to sit on that throne. So the question is, what does the Laodicean church look like? To start, no commendation from Jesus because they were too busy commending themselves. And this was resulting from self-sufficiency and pride. Sadly, Paul's Colossians was read to Laodicea. If you followed us when we were in the book of Colossians, we know that Paul wanted this letter to also be written or read to the Laodiceans. With the main thrust, follow this, the focused on Christ and Christ's sufficiency, but they didn't heed that. And the question is, did we? Because Colossians was also read here. Sufficiency of Christ, sufficiency from Christ. One of those things that we never stop talking about. And this is perfect timing because we live in a a society, we live in a portion of of our country's history where a lot of people are panicking. 
the banking community, the credit market, uh, job market, all these things. And we, as, as Americans, we've always been self-sufficient. We're coming into an era where every one of us will be somewhat affected by this current economic issue. So it's perfect timing that we're reading the scripture today in this portion. The Sardis problem was the, uh, the Sardis church was dead. We covered that in Loveless. This was neglect. This was a sin of omission. They just let their, their faith die and they were a monument. The Laodicean church, and just make some comparisons between the churches we've covered, were downright mocking God. This was a sin of commission, purposefully and knowingly, because they pushed Christ out of the picture and they had the audacity to continue to call it Christian. And we see the differences between sins of omission and sins of commission. We even see that in our laws today. You, if you go to book somebody, if they've done something wrong and you charge them with burglary, these are the elements. Purposefully and knowingly entered a, a, a structure with purpose of committing a crime. Burglary, 2C18. Neglect, child neglect. On the other end of the spectrum, you, you, you charge somebody for for neglecting your child, neglecting food, sustenance, and that there's, there's also a crime. So you have sins of omission and sins of commission. The Laodicean church today takes many forms under the modern church movement. And today I believe that what we have mostly today is Laodicean churches and Philadelphian churches, mostly. And there's some elements of other churches today. But you either have the faithful church or you have the apostate church of today. Now, the Laodicean church can come in many forms. One, it could be the politically correct church. All the traditional sins that the Bible said have been wrong are now okay. We've become tolerant as a society, so anything goes. We have to revamp and modernize the scripture because it's outdated. Big problem. Elements of the, uh, the emergent church, their attitude is, and you listen to some of their leaders, is, well, a lot of the things that were spoken about in the Bible were cultural issues. We talk about cultural issues, don't we? We just talked about Middle East dining. But it doesn't change the meaning of what the message of Christ was. So what they do is they use culture as a big eraser and erase, again, traditional sins. God says, don't do this. No, it's okay. Everything's okay now because we live in a different culture. We're, we're, we're modernizing the scripture. I don't care what you call it, but if it's on the opposite side of biblical issues, it's not Christian, period. There's a whole cadre of wolves in sheep's clothing out there. Ministers who seldom speak of Jesus but cloak their activities in tax-exempt status. I think of one particular organization. It's called the Americans uh, for the Separation of Church and State, headed by a minister of Jesus, Barry Lynn. This guy is consistently on the opposite side of biblical issues. Again, it's a cadre of ministers that use the tax-exempt cloak to peddle their wares. Any minister who has an agenda other than Christ's agenda is a Laodicean minister. The Laodicean church today causes church organizations to pull away from Christ and its foundations because now the churches derive their strength and wealth, not from the Lord and the Holy Spirit, but from temporal sources. That's why they have to go with the world. That's why they have to modernize the Bible, because you've you got to know what side your bread is buttered on. It's the world sources that are giving them their power and their wealth. Other elements of a Laodicean church is the wealthy, self-sufficient church. This church has everything. It has all the wealth the world has. I've heard the expression, why should Satan have all the money? Oh, that's great. So maybe we should all compete with Satan in his playground for his, for his things, you know, like an Easter egg hunt. You know, prosperity gospel fits into that. Uh, churches that rely on their real estate, empires, ego-driven ministries, and hoarding assets instead of using it, like Jesus says in Luke 16, 
using the unrighteous mammon to further the kingdom of heaven. It's the love of money that is the root of all evil. Money itself is not evil, it's a vehicle. It's a medium for exchange, but it's the love of money that's the root of all evil. Maybe these huge, colossal churches where pastors often and must avoid offensive portions of scripture in order to keep the numbers coming in and the money coming in and keep the machine moving. This church has truly abandoned Christ as its need are supplied by the world. Again, the machine's running. We don't know how it's running. It looks like a perpetual motion machine. We just know it's running. It just keeps going by itself. What about a Laodicean Christian? Well, that can come in many forms, too. A Laodicean Christian, number one, is a mile wide and an inch deep. There's no depth to that person. Number two, their attitude may be that they've arrived or they're haughty. Number three, they're appearance-driven. And number four, they have the audacity to look down on other people. And I've known of situations where churches have excluded certain groups, be it poor groups or people that don't look like them or whatever the case may be, because they have the audacity to look down on others. They're not like us. A lukewarm Christianity can be, the foundation is not in Christ. There's a lackluster faith in lukewarm Christianity that's only inversely related to their zeal for wealth and self-sufficiency. And again, it's ironic that we're in the financial situation today as we are in a nation. People are going to struggle. Churches are going to struggle. Many in the world will realize that they aren't all sufficient. And again, I'm not trying to be uncaring because, and I've told my, already told my wife this, my pension is now affected because of what happened. But you know what I'm not going to do? I'm not going to panic. I still come up here with a smile on my face. It doesn't matter to me because my trust is in the Lord. You know? I mean, in college I was an economics major, and I'm not going not to give you financial advice, but what we learned was everything goes in cycles. There's basically four cycles to an economy, and it goes up and down like a wave. And every time it goes down, people panic. But, you know what, eventually, and there are, you know, extraneous or important, pertinent situations. However, what happens is the bank goes under. Bank goes under. Um, Warren Buffett, now, he's waiting for everything to fall, and he's starting to buy up all these companies. Um, and what happens is, as they, when the stock market finally hits rock bottom, others, entrepreneurs, are going to buy the shares at low, they're going to buy the businesses, and they're going to bring them back up. And then when the economy takes an upturn again, right, there's going to be no change. Now, again, I'm not giving you financial advice because I don't want everybody calling me and saying, so you, you told me the wrong thing. But things go in cycles. It's not the end of the world. But what's interesting is, what I find interesting is that the situation is opening the door for people of faith to share their faith. I'll give you one example. Uh, young officer, I talk to the different, especially the younger guys, and uh, I was talking to him one day about, you know, this is just going to open the door to, you know, China, the Chinese market is dropped. The Russian market is dropped by 20 percent. Uh, the European market, they're all having trouble. But I said, this is just going to open the door to the international banking community to really solidify all the banks together and really have one world bank and one world government, all this kind of stuff. So the next day goes by. He comes up to me. He's really excited. He goes, Joe, Joe, you were right. You were right. He goes, I just read something about them trying to bring all the banks together. I said, listen, I'd like to take credit for it, but I can't. It was already written in the scripture. But the cool thing is he's now he's got all these questions for me, and it's totally opened the door to give the faith, to witness to him. Yes, this book predicted all these things 2,000 years ago. This is our opportunity. So 
My prayer is that we reject the Laodicean doctrine if we have any elements of that, and maybe God will use us to bless others in this dire situation. Let's pray.